going on, everyone? This will be episode 63 of the Strength and Success Show. Riley will hop on in a second and send a join request. Maybe one day we'll actually learn technology, and I think I can actually set up a room with her beforehand. If you know how to do that, message one of us, because that would be great. <laughs> but this will be episode 63. It is titled F-E-A-R, or better known as FEAR. It's going to be a little bit of an acronym. There's the request to join. It takes about five seconds for her to jump in. It's not going to be... Uh, False evidence appearing real, a little different, a little bit different scope here. So I do this live. There's Riley, and the traps are blazing. I see. Hello. 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 <laughs> Got that pump going. Yeah, it was a uh, my secondary day, and I didn't have to wear a t-shirt today, so I wore a tank top off my traps. <laughs> I'm noticing one of your traps is a little bit more bare than the other. You should fix that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Dress for success, Riley. Security. <laughs> I only have a couple more weeks until I fill in that spot, and then I'll feel balanced. Balanced. It's all about balance. <laughs> and of course, you talk to me, I'm like, balance is bullshit. But that's a whole other story. But um, thank you for joining me again. As always, every Thursday, as I was just saying, every Thursday at one thirty, usually we hop on unless we're traveling. We'll throw around maybe a day early, but this is episode 63, which is FEAR, but it's an acronym, F-E-A-R, and what that's actually going to stand for is face everything and rise. A little corny, I know, I'm sorry about that, but really one of the most common questions we get on the podcast is dealing with anxiety. It seems almost weekly we have someone talking about platform anxiety, new job anxiety, relationship anxiety, starting a business anxiety, whatever, but it seems fear is the overwhelming factor for so many people that reach out to us for help either through coaching or through podcasts, they're dealing with that issue of fear. And I look at that acronym of face everything and rise as really, really true because achievement really is on the other side of anxiety. We're all gonna have some level of anxiety at some point when we're trying something new, we're doing something different. For me, Riley's very aware of this. I have a, a fear of heights and not being in control. Roller coasters scare the shit out of me. I ride them anyways because that's my level of getting exposure to fear and getting over that fear. And I've gone on more and more of them with either my kids or with Riley in the past and done things. Um, I'm being challenged at one point in my life to go on this roller coaster in Ohio. We'll see if that ever happens. <laughs> it will happen. I will face that challenge and it will rise. But I was having dinner with Matt, um, Matt Berry, who is non-plinary, he's on here all the time. And he gave me this really interesting story of his past. And I wanted to expose, express this to people. But he is like an extreme adrenaline, adrenaline junkie. Like he grew up doing downhill skiing from like the age of seven, competing against adults. And then he was a, a street racing motocross athlete. You know, the guys that cover themselves in leather and have like metal knee shin guards and they bang the floor and drive off a turn at like 90 miles an hour. And the life expectancy is like 33 years old. It's pretty crazy. And of course, he got the powerlifting and he competes in all three segments, raw, single ply, and multiply, hence the term non-plinary. But he had this incident happen when he was younger. And he fell sideways off of a horse and the horse went running off and he was one to two inches away this entire time from this barbed wire fence that literally could have ended his life at any moment if one thing just nicked him open at the speed the horse was running at and his face was by this. It could have changed the entire trajectory of his life. So, of course, this extreme adrenaline drunkie develops this irrational fear of horses. And at some point in his life, he's going through some things and he seeks help and they prescribe him equine therapy which is totally ironic because his biggest fear in life is horses. And he has to go and work on learn how to clean and take care of this horse and do things as part of his therapy. And this scares the ever loving shit out of him just being next to this horse. And he's like, I don't know if I can do this. And this is a guy who's gone downhill at 60 miles an hour, has gone on motorbikes at 120 miles per hour, has been pushed over on motorbikes, has broken almost every bone in his body, has been chased by like a mountain lion down a mountain. That's another fun story he'll tell you one day. He's gone through so many things in life and this docile standing still horse is his biggest fear. Uh, he'll tell the story way better than I can. I'm paraphrasing a lot of this here. But what comes to happen is as he's cleaning this horse, he's giving up control to this animal that is significantly bigger than him, stronger than him, and it is the harness of his fear. He's giving that all up by giving gradual exposure every day going in there, cleaning this horse, brushing this horse, walking this horse around until a point where the fear completely disappears because he's gotten so comfortable with the horse and the horse has gotten so comfortable with him. He goes and visits and takes a picture with the same horse like every year now. He's, he's posted before. But it just shows that our fear really is at ultimate levels irrational. And if we slowly give ourselves a little bit of exposure and very frequently to it, we won't be afraid. 
And I wanted to use this story because we, we say this all the time of repetition builds confidence. Every time you get under the bar, you're building confidence. That seems too simple. Here's a great real, real life example of someone who was literally deathly afraid of this animal. And he now credits this animal for saving the rest of his life because he overcame that fear. He faced it and he rose from it. And everything we achieve in life really comes from giving up that irrational fear and taking a leap of faith towards it. In corporate world, they would consider it a trust fall. You know, people are going to catch you. So you have to kind of do that trust fall and you have to expose yourself to these elements of fear because you don't know otherwise. And achievement really sits on the opposite side of fear. If you want to accomplish anything, you must expose yourself to that fear to get that level. Yeah, uh, this acronym actually makes me think of the Italian job movie. <laughs> In a different way it's not the same acronym but in in the italian i don't know why this makes me think of this it's not really related but in the, in uh in the italian job they use the acronym fine like if someone says they're fine they're like you know what fine really means right and it stands for like freaked out insecure neurotic and emotional yes um, for some reason that always stood out to me i loved that movie i wanted the mini cooper after seeing that movie but uh that's just caveat so i digress but um one of the first I want to say it was like my third tattoo I ever got was the one on my hip. And I've talked about it before in other episodes and it says, take every chance and drop every fear. Super cliche, typical, like 19 year old. I just want to get a tattoo and didn't know really what I wanted, but it like, it still resonates with me, even though it's kind of like a cheesy quote, I guess. And it's on my body forever. But, um, and this is something that I talked about on multiple podcasts before. Uh, I'm sure everyone knows it by now, but like, that's one thing that I try to always live up to is like, okay, if I have an opportunity to do something better or progress somehow uh, in life, I'm going to take that opportunity. Like I've moved, I picked up and moved states multiple times. Um, I went from Indiana to North Carolina to Chicago, uh, now to Florida, all just because I wasn't happy in the situations that I was in. So I was like, well, if I want to be happy and if I want to, uh, set myself up for more success or give myself more opportunities, I need to get out of the situations that I'm in currently. So I wasn't, a, I tried to dismiss any sort of fear that I had, um, make those leaps, make those changes. You know, same thing when I quit my full-time job to coach full-time. Um, I wasn't totally reckless with that. You know, like I was manager of vitamin shop um, and I was part-time coaching. And I told myself, okay, when I get to X amount of clients that will allow me to have enough income to where I can pay my bills and like have a little bit of a cushion. Um, so that way I'm not like living paycheck to paycheck all the time, but this is the threshold that I need to get to in order to quit my full-time job. And when I was deciding to move to Florida, I was really, really close to that threshold. And I was like, you know, I really don't want to move to Florida and transfer with the vitamin shop. Like, I just want to do this full time. I want to coach full time. So instead of giving myself a safety net and being like, okay, well, I'll just transfer and I'll like take a lower position and work part time so that way I can grow my coaching business or whatever. I was like, I'm just going to quit working at the vitamin shop. I'm not going to transfer. I'm going to coach full time. I will do it what is necessary um, in order for me to get the clients that I need to like feel comfortable and like grow past that threshold that I set for myself. And me removing that safety net is really what, what helped me be more successful. So basically not having that safety net was me taking the fear out of the equation and just being like, okay, these are the things that I have to do in order to pay my bills. These are the things that I have to do in order to grow my coaching. Don't give yourself the in my, for me specifically, I needed to not give myself the option to fail because if I didn't give myself the option to fail, I, I wouldn't fail. Um, and it, it's worked out really, really well. Um, I've done really, really great with coaching. I have no complaints. It's my full-time job. Um, it's exactly what I wanted and I get to set my own schedule, but I had to take out the possibility of having fear about the situation to be successful. Um, it's actually funny that one of my bottles is sitting in front of me right now, like one of my water bottles or whatever. And there's a sticker on there that says starve your fear and like starve your fear is exactly correct. This is from um, Lexi. She goes to Rockwell. It's her, she has like rivalry strength is the name of her coaching business. And that's kind of her catchphrase. This is one of her stickers, but I, that absolutely re resonates with me. Like if you don't continue to feed your fear, it will starve and it will die off, but you have to put yourself in situations to where you are going to be scared and you have to overcome it or else you never overcome that fear. 100% accurate. You know, when people give themselves an option or a plan B or a way out, they're going to take it. 
because it's a lot easier to take that than the exposure to the fear and do things. Um, somebody was telling me in the tattoo shop, the guy was telling me that he went cliff diving and he climbed this cliff and there's only, there's no way down other than jumping off this cliff. And he's at the top of the cliff and he's sitting there and he, he's telling me the story because he got a like third degree sunburn because he chickened out at the top and there was no way to walk down. So he was up there for two and a half hours contemplating this baking in the sun. He realized, I got to do this. And he, uh, he clipped those off of this. And, you know, the worst case scenario was just his sunburn because he was, he was chickening out for like two and a half hours in the middle of this cliff in somewhere in Canada. But it was like, it was really cool because it's like, you get to that point where you realize when you remove the safety net, you're going to get over the fear. And the more fears you conquer and the more things you get over, you're going to be that much more successful. If you can achieve one thing, you can achieve anything. It's a, it's a momentum builder of smaller aspects. Maybe one day we'll get Riley to hold a spider. That would be great. <laughs> That's her biggest fear is spiders, FYI. So don't go blasting her DMs with spider pictures. She will block you. I promise you. <laughs> I will absolutely block you. And in this case situation, some fears don't need to be gotten over. I, there's no need for me to get over that fear. I, I don't need to coexist with them. I don't. <laughs> my my oldest my oldest stepson was irrationally afraid of clowns, so I used to text him pictures of like scary clowns. I'm like, you're gonna get over this. I'm just gonna bombard you with it. And I'm actually pretty sure he's gotten over his fear of clowns. But that was I want to take credit for that. <laughs> mean. All right, yeah, it is mean. All right, so let's get to some questions now that we've talked about. Face everything and rise. Somebody mentioned it's a Papa Roach reference. It is a Papa Roach song because we all love anthem music, or at least I do. Dad rock, sad rock, as we named it earlier, sad rock and uh, anthem song. So questions, you guys can ask questions on the podcast. We have an abundance of questions that people have sent us through our story Q&As. Riley drops hers every Tuesday. I drop mine every Wednesday. You guys can drop questions in there. Sometimes we answer them on there and sometimes we answer them on the live in a little bit more detail and sometimes both, depending on how good the question is. But feel free to drop questions here if you need help with things. Okay, first question is how to minimize pinchy hip flexors with sumo. So this is usually a situation where someone is probably sitting too low and doesn't have necessarily the mobility to go as wide as they're trying to go. So they're standing wide and sitting low, causing that pinch feeling in the hip flexor. The first thing I would do is probably learn your most ideal position. Bring those, those weights up a little bit with like a one or two inch block, narrow your stance, find a better position, and learn to actually start sumo. The whole idea with sumo is leverage of the higher hip. Your hips should be as high as possible in the sumo and excellent rotating those hips outward. So if you're feeling a pinch in sumo, but not in squats, you're sitting too low and standing too wide and you don't have the mobility for that. And it's not how wide you can go. Like I've demonstrated this at seminars. I can go plate to plate on a deadlift bar, but I'm not as strong as if I am four or five inches in from those plates because I have more hip torque there. If you go to your end range of hip external rotation and your end range of hip flexion, you're going to feel that pinch when the load gets on you because there's nothing stabilizing your pelvis at that point. You've gone too wide and too low. So I would, I would probably film your stance and see what width you're at and how low your hips are. Because ideally, your hips should be well higher than your knee in sumo and then chest up from there. And just basically, it's a wide stance leg press from that position. Yeah, and also when people try to stand too wide, they also like ultra flare their toes out too. And that also limits their hip mobility and their, hip, their ability to have hip extension. So if you're super wide, super flared, that's probably not ideal for you generally. Um, and if you're feeling that pinching in external rotation, working on your internal rotation is probably going to be what you need to do because something is probably too tight in one way or the other um, in that, in whatever position that you are. So even if you're not standing too wide and you're feeling that pinchy hip flexor, I would do, I would work on your internal rotation, banded hip internal rotations, um, hip 99 use, something like that, just to kind of balance it out. Because generally, since we spend so much time externally rotated in sumo, it's usually our internal that needs a little bit of love. So getting that to balance out from the external is probably what I would do, aside from what Trevor said. All the time, anyways. If you pull sumo, you should be spending a lot of time just doing banded hip internal rotations to keep that balance. Everyone always says sumo destroys my hips. It's not sumo. It's the overabundance of external rotation, and you get weak in internal rotation, and that's what causes that irritation. So live in a world of internal rotation just as much as you live in the world of external rotation. Balance. <laughs> Is the dog misbehaving? She's chewing the wall again? No, she's just uh, Wyatt just got inside, so she was uh, attacking him. Gotcha. All right, what's our next question? Um, cues or tips for getting shoulders over the bar for deadlift? Cues or tips for getting shoulders over the bar for deadlift? If you're having trouble getting into a good position, chances are you're lacking mobility in one of two areas. 
hamstring length to be able to sit down to that proper position where your hips are in line with the bar and your shoulders are in line with the bar or upper back mobility. You see a lot of people who live in a very kyphotic posture and they end up forward over the bar instead of, and I'm sorry, in front of the bar instead of directly over the bar. So I would work on thoracic rotations and thoracic mobility to make sure your shoulders can get to the best possible position. And really, if you're struggling to get all the way down there to where you can get yourself tight to the bar from the hips, that would be something you'd want to lengthen the hamstrings a little bit and work on the hamstring mobility and the adductor mobility so you can get to that position, even conventional. I've seen this happen with people conventional where they have really, really tight adductors or really, really tight hamstrings and they can't actually get down to the bar and they end up doing basically like an RDL deadlift because they can't drop down. So typically that's either too much kyphosis of the upper back or limiting hamstring length. More often than not, it's too much kyphosis of the upper back. When you see those people who really live like this, completely rounded and forward over and they have that sway humpback style, they're the ones who struggle to get their shoulders over the bar. So thoracic extensions over a roller every single day, uh, the over the bench um, thoracic stretch, where you put your elbows on there and you drop your head through, loosen those lats, they're pulling you down, they're tight. Um, they're probably weak because they're so tight as well. So loosen them so you can strengthen them and just work on your, your thoracic extension posture so you can get a more upright position. Because if you're in front of the bar and you're struggling to get over the bar, you're probably too kyphotic for that style of pull. Uh, this makes me, for some reason, this makes me think of Joey, because he's always the one that's asking about <laughs> the rest When uh, Joey's asking questions, he's getting picked on. Uh, honestly, but like the way that this question is phrased, is like getting the shoulders over the bar. I, I that like confuses me because I'm not sure if they're trying to say that they want their shoulders in front of the bar or if they're trying to say that they want them in line. But your shoulders should be in line with the barbell, not necessarily over them. Um, but that's all going to be like thoracic extension strength. There are some people who can start with their shoulders in front of the bar if they have like super awesome ex uh, thoracic extension. But for the most part, people don't generally have that. And that's typically the downfall for most people's sumos is that they can't thoracically extend. Um, so starting ideally with the bar, like in line with your armpits is a really, really good way to get yourself in like the best position. And then it's more so like pulling your chest and shoulders back instead of just trying to press the legs away. Like people forget about the upper body and they just try to push the legs. The Buffalo bar and I have never used one before. Do I use the same width as my regular bench grip? I only know you said if buying a specialty bar, Buffalo or SSB. Yeah, nothing changes, just the range of motion increases. So if you're using the Buffalo bar for bench press, you're gonna have an extra one and a half, two inches camber of range of motion. So be prepared for that. You might wanna start slowly with something like a Spoda press and not actually take it to its fullest range until you make sure you can accommodate that range. It doesn't change your grip. It doesn't change your grip on squats. It doesn't change your grip on bench, unless you're doing a variation like close grip bench and stuff like that, or wide grip bench. Uh, I wouldn't recommend wide grip bench with Buffalo or Buffalo bar because that's a lot of range load. But when you're first using the Buffalo or Buffalo, Personally, I prefer the Buffalo because the Buffalo camber is way too steep for most people. It destroys their shoulders. I would probably stick with a, a Buffalo Spoto press, and I would use it a lot for squats because it's just so much kinder where the camber sits down, your arms can be lower. It's so much kinder on people's shoulders than a straight bar is. Uh, that's really where the Buffalo benefits and the added range of motion on bench press. Uh, I find that I actually like it to be one finger closer for the Buffalo bar or Buffalo bar. Like, I, I will bring my grip in one closer. Like, I'm on uh, middle fingers on the ring for regular bench and I do in ring fingers on the ring for Buffalo bar. I feel like that feels more comfortable on my shoulders specifically. I don't know if that's the same for everyone, but that's what I tend to do. And also my bottom range is um, the weaker part. So if I bring my grip in more, it's a little bit more range of motion for myself. So it gives me that bottom range that I'm looking for. Works the area of need. And that's, that's something to consider, you know, uh, best, best advice is try it. Try it and see how it feels. If it feels awkward, work yourself in or work yourself out. But every, every bar, I would start with where you're already at and then adjust from there only if need be. Yeah. Um, okay. Does pulling sumo guarantee higher numbers most of the time? No. <laughs> Listen, sumo is not gold. I love sumo. But if you suck at sumo, it's not going to guarantee you have a higher number. You have to learn a technique. You have to learn to be proficient with it. It is not something that just because you switch to sumo, you're going to be stronger until you understand the mechanics of sumo versus conventional. Uh, I can give you a case in point. It took Riley about two and a half years, two years, a little bit more than two years to outpull her conventional best done sumo. Um, and that's not untypical. I've had other athletes who switched to sumo who still haven't outpulled their best conventional. They have sumo. They switched to sumo for various reasons, be it injury or just different training blocks. Um, Trisha's one of those. Trisha's one of those, and Eddie's one of those, 
where his conventional poll is 655, but his best sumo poll is 633. They're not far off, but he's got a real strong low back, so he's better conventional, and he's not the most technical with sumo. It starts to break down a certain weight. Trisha's the same way. Trisha will pull like 80 to 85% flawlessly. She gets above 85% and sumo falls apart. She can't get the thoracic extension or the hip external rotation. She's the one that tends to cave in. So it's not a guarantee ever. Just because you see more people doing it and adapting to it and learning it from a younger age doesn't mean it's guaranteed. It just, it's probably at this point where when I started the sport, there wasn't the internet like there is now. There wasn't Facebook and IG to the level we have now where you can learn at such an accelerated rate because people like myself and people like Riley put out content and educational material or tips and tricks. You have to go to a meet and just look at people or study people or watch videos and see how people are moving and then try and understand that movement, those biomechanics. You really have to dive in to learn. So you just see people more proficient with it now because there's a lot more information on it than there was then. It's not a guarantee, though. There's a lot of people who pull less sumo than they can conventional. In the meet, though, you're going to go with what you're strongest because that builds your best total. That's why I always say it's probably a good idea to train both and decide which is your stronger pattern. But being proficient in both teaches you a lot about your body awareness and your body mechanics and how you move. And once you understand how you move, then you can start to develop all of your lifts on top of that. Yeah, I have plenty of clients that switch to sumo because they think it's going to be easier. They assume that their body type is better for sumo or whatnot. And like, that may, they may have like a body type that fits more for sumo than conventional, but like actually putting the pieces together um, for sumo is really challenging. So whenever people say that like sumo is cheating, uh, I, you know, it's just, it's really annoying because it's, it's very like sequential and it's a lot it's a lot more finesse and I was never, I was not used to that. Like I was definitely someone who brute forced my way through a lot of things. So like switching to sumo was something that was really, really challenging. And even now I feel like I don't even necessarily have it down how I should, I guess. Um, like I feel like I don't have the technique down a hundred percent, but I'm still working at it every single time. I feel like that's the thing that people miss is like with sumo, you're going to have to consistently work at like the technicality of it versus, you know, conventional, most people can just rip up. But just because you switch to sumo doesn't mean that you're going to get 50 more pounds in your deadlift. Like that's all going to come from how well you can piece together the sequence. It's so much more nuanced and coordinated. And there are some people who do take to it pretty rapidly and not everyone's going to be that. So no, it's not a guarantee that it's going to up your total just because you switch to sumo. Like Riley said, there's a lot of people who switch to sumo and they just end up getting frustrated because of how long it takes to learn it. Yes. And they quit. Yep. Um, okay. Biggest business lessons that make you change your perspective about finances. Uh, this is a very in-depth question. I'm going to take it in a different direction from the way the question is. And I'm going to say it in the terms of understand your worth and understand your value. Uh, there's questions on here about, you know, I don't feel comfortable charging or I don't feel like I should be charging as much as this person or I want to be the cheapest. No, you don't. The biggest lesson, the biggest takeaway you have is if you don't value yourself, nobody else will either. You have to understand what your worth is, what your education is, what your experience is, and how much you can help someone, and that's what you charge. You will charge what you are worth, and they will value you for what you charge. If you don't charge enough or you give deals and discounts or friend benefits or whatever, that's how they're going to value you, and they're going to take advantage of that. So you must set that boundary of this is what I charge, this is what I value myself, and I only want to work with people who respect that. Because if you don't have them respecting you or treating you the way you should be from the start, you're not going to get very far with them. It's going to end up being bad. You're going to end up wanting to get rid of them or irritated by them or vice versa. They're going to feel like you're not doing enough. And at the same time, they're getting a deal. So you have to first understand that you are a value and you must value yourself and charge what you're worth. And then your business will skyrocket because you're going to draw the people who see the same value in you that they do. I'm sorry, you see the same, draw the people who value you the same way you value yourself is what I meant to say. Yeah, I definitely uh, would uh, echo the sentiment of charging your friends. Like that sounds bad to say, but like it's one of their your friends are going to support you regardless. Like I will, if my friend is doing something, I will pay full price. Like Melissa puts out shirts, I buy shirts from her. Like I, I like to support my friends and I feel like that should be reciprocated. Um, I made the mistake in the past of giving discounts to friends that I'm coaching and it was definitely a waste of my time. Um, and I don't necessarily mean that maliciously, but they didn't take it seriously. Um, it was more frustrating to me than anything. And they were paying me, you know, like 50% less than what everyone else was because I was like, oh, you're my friend. Like, I'll give you a discount, blah, 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 whatever, whatever. This was when I was 
uh, like within my first year of coaching and it became frustrating because they were not paying and then they were expecting the same amount of things and they weren't going to the gym and they were getting frustrated because they weren't doing what they needed to do. Like they just didn't care about it. And, but they expected me to go above and beyond caring about it because I was their friend. Um, so I will not make that mistake again. If you are my friend and you want to get coached by me, you will pay the same rates that everyone else does. Um, you don't have to give out discounts. You also don't have to give out discounts just because people ask you. Um, I've been asked that before about like coaching like a husband and wife together. Um, and they've asked for a discount with that. And I'm like, you know, I get it, but no, that's not how my payment system works. Um, this is my, these are my systems. This is how it works. I understand that you guys are both in the same household, but no, like you don't have to give people discounts just because they ask, um, if it doesn't make you comfortable and it doesn't fit your system, then you can say no. It's like you use the example of a husband and wife and I've had people ask about this before. Like we're in the same household, a husband and wife. And I'm like, yeah, but it's individual programming. I'm writing an individual for you and an individual for them. So I'm doing the same amount of work. Why should you pay me half? <laughs> Sorry. That just lets me know you don't respect me. And when someone comes at me with that tone, I'm usually hostile in a degree of like politely hostile. Like, hey, you can shop around. Good luck. Yeah, I'm not the coach for you. If you, if you want someone who's going to charge you less or do less, that's what you got. Go for it. Um, okay. <laughs> Have you ever been injured during powerlifting and what did you do for recovery? I laughed when this question came through. I'm like, I think I said it was one of the ones that was a voice recorder when I was driving across the state. I'm like, you must be new here. <laughs> I have an abundance of injuries, a laundry list of injuries, competing for 17 years now in strength sports between strongman, weightlifting, powerlifting, and so forth. And the one random CrossFit contest I did on, on, on uh, eight days notice. Um, there's been many injuries. This is an extreme sport to a degree that you are testing your absolute physical and mental limits under the bar. And sometimes those limits will push back and you will break them. If you are fearing that, you have to face that fear, obviously. There are things we can do to minimize or avoid that. And one of them, and one of the best ways is fatigue management. Somebody sent me a post about someone saying deload as, as little as possible. And I thought that was stupid. And that person's already burned out of the sport in three years. So it was a really dumb statement. They didn't even last more than three years. And I've been competing in strength sport for 17. I'm on the opposite spectrum. Do I want you to deload every other week? No. But you know what I want you to manage is fatigue. Because the number one contributing factor of injury is fatigue. People will argue until the cows came home about form, how much it affects injury or not. If you have poor form, you may not get hurt. If you have poor form and fatigue, you probably will get hurt. So the, you, know, you don't wanna put the carpet before the horse, you wanna manage fatigue. And the best way to do that is to have a structured program, not overdo it, actually follow it to within its ranges and boundaries and deload as much as you need to. We get asked that question a lot at seminars, when is it appropriate to deload? It's going to vary off of an individual. But Riley likes to look at certain things like, does their mood change? Does their verbiage change? Do their lifts start dropping down? Cause like, let's say for example, you have an AMRAP every week on bench. And even though the weight's going up, you've been trending up, but all of a sudden out of nowhere, you're getting significantly less reps. You've got fatigue. It's probably time to take that step back because that's how we adapt and we grow. We get to a point of fatigue and then we take a step back. We get to that point of fatigue again and we take a step back. And it cycles up over time. If you're always redlining and pushing forward, eventually the engine is going to burst. And the engine in our body is usually some type of muscle. You know, you have quad tears, lat tears, pec tears, whatever. But that fatigue is what causes that injury to happen in the first place. And it's, that's the hardest aspect of the sport is managing that fatigue because even though we're managing an athlete's program, we aren't managing their life. And your body doesn't know the difference between exercise-based stress and life-based stress. So if life gets a little bit stressful, you have to communicate that to your coach or know it on your program to adjust accordingly because we have a finite amount of stress we can handle before things break down. I don't know that I've had like any, I, have, I haven't had any like massive um, injuries. Like I've had lots of strains and sprains and whatnot like uh, my hips are always like pretty bothersome. Um, they just get out of whack, I guess. Uh, I don't, I've had some shoulder issues, like hip flexor stuff, my knee, like that was more like tendonitis kind of thing, but I haven't had any massive injuries, but basically like whatever I do when I'm having those issues is I do what I can and I pull back from what I can't. Um, so that may be altering my stance for a little bit. That may be backing off on some sort of bench work or whatever it is, but I just, I back off on the things that are irritating it and replace that with things that are not irritating it that kind of accomplish the same goal. Um, if you, I don't take like a week off or two weeks off or whatever, but like I said, it hasn't been a massive injury. Like I know that people have 
massive like quad tears and adductor tears and pec tears and all these kind of things. And they are forced to like take time off or whatever. But if it's just like, it's like minor strains and sprains and whatnot, just replacing what you can't do with what you can do is generally a good way to go about it. Um, and getting like the blood flow in the area to repair it basically. When program, when, why would you program SSB as opposed to the high bar or vice versa? Well, the SSB sits high bar anyways. So the SSB is very similar to the high bar squat. They both actually sit high bar. The benefit of the SSB though, is it's going to challenge thoracic extension a lot more than the high bar. Well, high bar will challenge your, your quads more because you're upright and SSB will also challenge your quads the same way as it's high bar. But the SSB is going to end up pulling you forward a little bit and you have to fight to create thoracic extension of the bar so you hold that upright posture. So there is a little bit more of an added challenge to the SSB versus the, um, the high bar itself. I utilize both. I just like to do different phases because the body gets stuck in one pattern. If someone has too many blocks of back-to-back -back SSB, they usually end up struggling getting back under a straight bar because they haven't actually challenged their mobility to do it. So I like to utilize both. Say, for example, after a meet, someone's pretty beat up. Their volume block, I'll typically use an SSB if they have one available to them and then jump the high bar after that and work my way back to the low bar squat in time. But there's no necessarily difference between where they sit. There's just a difference in what challenges what. The SSB will challenge the upper back more than the high bar squat would. I like, um, I actually like SS programming SSB after high bar work sometimes. Like I'll do high bar, uh, high bar squats and like SSB pause squats after because you are already fatigued in like the upper back and torso and whatnot. So putting the SSB on your back afterwards, forcing a pause, making sure that you maintain tension is a really, really good way to train your upper back and also like work on the thoracic extension like Trevor mentioned. Um, I like the SSB for most people because they generally tend to try to pull the handles down and like cheat it a little bit. Um, and it really makes them focus on the thoracic extension, which carries over to your squat and your deadlift. Um, so I prefer the SSB, I think, if people have access to it, but I like the high bar. I like to keep both in because I don't want to lose the pattern of a straight bar um, or of the straight bar work, but I like the SSB because for most people that aren't cheating it, it is a hard, way harder variation. Uh, uh, not everyone, I'm gonna give myself an example of this, but how I use, I have three different SSB bars in my garage. And one of them has like these tiny little nub handles that you can't really hold. And it really rounds you hard. And when my SSB squat goes up, it doesn't necessarily improve my, my actual back squat. It improves my deadlift because I'm really fighting very hard in thoracic extension. That's how I leave my deadlift, my sumo and my conventional with that. So it's one of those things like Riley talked about. There's more carryover from the SSB to the actual deadlift than there is to just the squat. It's pretty similar carryover for a squat pattern for the high bar and the SSB. The only difference is that upper back thoracic extension is going to help the deadlift so more. And believe it or not, to some degree, your bench. It's gonna help your bench because it's not deteriorating your shoulders as much having a bar on them as opposed to around them. And learning how to get thoracic extension is how we actually want to arch for the bench press. Tight thoracic extension is our ideal bench position, not lumbar extension. So being able to feel and learn a difference will help you with positional awareness on the bench. Yeah, I just had a, a, a potential sent me an email and she mentioned how her low back flares up every single time that she benches. I'm like, oh, that's because you lumbar extend, you don't actually thoracically extend. So those are two separate things that you have to figure out. And uh, if your low back is hurting you when you're benching, you are entirely lumbar extending and not thoracically extending. So that's something to work on. Um, next question, how do you help an athlete's mindset when they have hit a plateau or possibly regressed? Um, plateaus are really, really, rare you can stall out on the lift or for a period of time and those plateaus aren't always lifting related sometimes they're life related like stress is a little bit higher or you're not eating or you've been in a cutting phase for a very long period of time so you're feeling lethargic and slow i wouldn't look at it from a, a plateau of that because the stronger you get the harder it is to progress and lift over time but you're a lifer at that point it doesn't matter as far as regression is concerned that's where something is like you, you really have to look at what are you doing outside of the gym are you not drinking? Are you not eating? Are you not sleeping? Are you going through a tremendous life stressor and so forth? Because if you are going backwards in training, you're either doing way too much or you haven't been consistent with training and eating. And that's usually the reason why someone regress. You won't lose strength if you're training accordingly. Not significantly anyways, like one or 2%. Yeah, there's times you're gonna be one or 2% less strong because you have fatigue really high or you're in your off season or you haven't been specific to comp stuff. But if you're starting to see like a five or 10% decline, that's stuff that's really happening probably outside the gym, not so much stuff that's happening inside the gym that's holding you back. Yeah, if you're, um, if you're consistently like deloading and you're following your program and it's the program makes sense, it's 
progressive and you're getting progressive overload, you're getting feedback. Like if all those things are checked on the boxes, then it's probably likely life related and outside the gym. Um, that is a, uh, as a coach, that's not necessarily my business to get into. Um, if someone is having massive life stress, that's not related to the gym and it is affecting the gym. That's some, they need to reach out to someone who can actually help them with that, uh, whether that's going to therapy or whether that's addressing whatever issue it is with whoever, whomstever it is outside the gym. But that's not, that's not something that's necessarily within um, my job as their powerlifting coach to deal with. So I, if anything, I wouldn't be approaching that situation, I guess. So if it is outside of those things, like outside of the deload, outside of how your program is, that's not my task to take on for the lifter that's something that they have to address and if that means that they have to pull back on training or if they have to you know go down to three days instead of five days or whatever it is like that's something that they need to do but they need to discuss it with me but i make sure to very um very much not involve myself in those things if they don't have anything to do with me i don't i don't get paid for that i'm not a therapist something significant that most people overlook of doing less because life is giving you more and i have a client who had that same situation. He used to train five days a week and he has a full-time job and he was just recently married and they took on side projects of buying and renovating houses and then renting them out, the Burr method. And it was just killing him. And he didn't want to back down. And I'm like, you're, you're doing too much that you can handle. You're starting to miss lists that you would routinely make. Let's try like a block of just three days a week with higher frequency and take out a lot of the accessory movements and just focus on some specific stuff of the compilists and variations of. And basically he has an SBD day, a bench day, and then his deadlift day he has secondary squats. So we're getting all of them in. And his numbers have shot up, even though his tasks didn't change outside of the gym. Like they have two properties now. He has a full-time job, he's got his wife, they've got a, she's got a full-time job on the whole nine. But it was just an example of, it was more than his body could handle at that time. And he didn't want to change his life because they were looking to do that for future investment purposes. And he still wanted to progress in the gym. So I had to make that adjustment of telling him, hey, let's try tapering back how much you do and see how it affects you. And he's loving life now because lifts have gone up, life has gone up. So that's why I said sometimes like you have to accommodate and balance that stress out of how much you do outside of the gym versus how much you can do inside of the gym. Because it's not how much you can do, it's how much you can recover from. Well, and like realistically, if you're, let's say you're on five days a week and you're regressing, um, going consistently trying to beat yourself into the ground for five days will probably keep you regressing. It will probably promote regression um, versus if you are going to drop down to say three days a week, that may be actually something that helps you progress. Right. Of so doing in this instance, I understand that doing less probably makes you feel like you're going to regress even more. But in this instance, if there are other things going on outside, um, in your life, then doing less will probably help you get more from your training. Just being more intentional with movement and allowing the intention of more recovery. Tremendous. Yep. Okay. Um, how long do you want to work with a client before their meet? One day. I want to get to know you the day before, and then we're going to shoot for the, shoot for the moon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I will not take anyone on without a minimum of 12 weeks before their meet, uh, if I can help it. There are some people who were like, sign up, like, oh, by the way, I'm going to meet in seven weeks. And I'm like, fuck you. I hate you. Uh, literally, that's what I'll say to myself. I won't say it to them, but I'm like, God damn it. But I want to, to be able to get to know you before I can peak you. I don't want to just jump into a prep and jump into a peak without knowing you in any way, shape, or form. So my minimum cutoff before someone's going to compete is going to be 12 weeks. So I can run through a block, see how you adapt and adjust, look at your form, give you things. I don't want to change a whole hell of a lot before a meet because that can be overwhelming for a lifter to change a lot of mechanics or do things. So we make small micro adjustments, maybe in stance width or grip width or so forth. Kind of like we do at the seminars, little micro adjustments to help them be more efficient with movement, but nothing significant. Um, it, it does help when you get the intake from the athlete about what they've been doing or what they progressed from or what they don't like and so forth. But even then, not everyone's 100% accurate with the information they give you. So you want some time to learn them. The reason why I won't take anybody on sooner is because Generally, if someone does that, where they try to reach out to a coach and like five or six weeks out for me, it's because things have gone horribly wrong. You can't fix what they've already broken. You only have time to peak them at that point, just get rid of fatigue and see what they're capable of and then going from there. So I've expressed that to people who are like, hey, by the way, I'm going to meet in six or seven weeks. I'm like, listen, I can't make you better in that time frame. I can only eliminate fatigue. But after the meet, we'll see what numbers you have and where you're at and we will build from there. But if someone comes to me and they're in a time frame and they've openly expressed their enemy, I won't touch them unless they're at least 12 weeks out. 
Yeah, my threshold is usually 10 to 12 weeks. And like, I have the same sentiment where I'll even tell the lifter that like, hey, you're um, 10 to 12 weeks out, like what strength you have is pretty much what you have at this point. Um, you know, like with 10 to 12 weeks out, there's basically like one block of work and then peaking, you know, so it's like, I'm not building any significant amount of muscle or strength or whatever for you in that time. Um, in like the four to six weeks, I'm not I'm just not, I'm not that good. I'm not, I'm not doing that for you in four to six weeks where I'm like adding 50 pounds to your total or whatever. Basically what strength you have then is what you have. And like Trevor mentioned, we can make small tweaks and like make things a little bit more efficient. And that may give you five more pounds on a lift or something like that. But I make that pretty clear. Like when someone's like, oh, I'm 12 weeks out. I'm like, okay, well, you know, like we'll work with what you have and we'll make some small changes, nothing drastic since your meat is 12 weeks out. Um, what strength you have built is what you already have built though. So like that's, I can't make miracles happen basically. You know? um, I would love to take someone on six weeks out and make them add a hundred pounds to their total. That would be great. I would be awesome if that was, but um, yeah, 10 to 12 weeks, that basically gives me one block to see like what areas of opportunity there are like small enough to make, to be willing to make a change. But like, I'm not overhauling your entire deadlift or your squat at nine weeks out. And then, um, you know, expecting you to hit it perfectly with like the last couple of practice sessions. Like that's just not how it goes. Um, so I prefer working with an athlete for a extended period of time before their meet. But like my, my threshold would be 10 weeks out would be like the ultimate last ditch. If you're nine weeks out, I'm telling you, no, 10 weeks, I'll be like, okay, all right. I don't know why that's my number, but 10 to 12 weeks is generally my number. It's like school, you know, you spend nine months preparing for the finals. You don't show up two weeks before finals and take them. You spend nine months preparing for them. <laughs> so you want some time with them to get them used to it and build them up or work with them or find out areas of need and so forth. And everyone's different, you know, everyone's different. Some people are gonna progress fast, some people are gonna progress slow. Um, I have several masters athletes and sometimes they get frustrated. They're like, how come this person's progressing? They'll send me a, a video of like their friend. I'm like, they're 24. You're six. Give me a break. <laughs> Cannot compare oranges to apples. It doesn't work that way. So things are time. Honestly, in general, if people would just stop comparing their lists to others, they'd probably do better. Like the, it's, it's like at that point, it's all mental because you're like, wow, I'm not good enough. So then you don't think you're good enough. So just like, I don't, it doesn't matter if they are the same age as you, the same blah, 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 whatever. Just stop comparing yourself to your friends. Just lift, <laughs> just focus on you, you know? Um, okay, next question is failing the deadlift right at the knees. Any advice? So if someone's failing the deadlift at the knees, it usually, not always, but usually means that their hips are shooting back away from the bar and they're not coming into the bar, which means you're struggling with hip extension. If the bar shoots up and your hips shoot back, you're shooting all of the load into your lower back and your lower back is a prime stabilizer, not a prime mover. So what happens there is you have no hip extension torque. The farther your hips get back away from the bar, the less hip extension torque you have to put into the bar. And that's what's causing you to fail at that mid range between the knees. This is gonna go from where you start. If you're starting in a poor position, not, not starting poor position, if you're starting with poor tension, excuse me, if you're starting with poor tension, you don't have your lats locked in, your hips are gonna go back and your shoulders are gonna round forward. You're going to lose upper back tension and that's what causes the hips to shoot back in the first place. Losing lat and teres major tension down, packing the shoulders down and the hips down is what keeps your hips into the bar. That is the anchor that locks them together. So if you've lost upper back and shoulder tension, the hips go away and that's why you're, you're failing in the mid range because you can't get the bar to come through. You can't bring your hips in. So work on how you tension the bar I love doing this where people just learn tension squeezes, learning how to squeeze the bar to actually pop off the floor and seeing how heavy they can get that to go. Um, I've done this in, in demonstration with like sumo, like 635, just tension the bar off the floor, literally just from tension, from hip tension, lat tension, popping that up off the floor. The better you get at creating starting tension, the faster you're gonna be up the floor and the easier it's going to be to lock that out because you have hip tension all the way through. So if you don't know how to grab tension, chances are you're gonna fail in the middle. Yeah, sumo is definitely how you start is how you finish. So if you don't, and like, that's like the most vital aspect of your sumo is if you do not have uh, your lat tension set, or if you don't have your starting tension set, like in your thoracic and all that, you, like you're not, you're not going to get the lift. Or if you are, unless you are just absolutely root strength, low back, and you just make it as ugly as possible, you're probably not going to get that lift. But that's where most people fail at. It's not like, 
I know that a lot of people, when they fail at the knees, they think that it's like, they think it's like weak glutes, weak hips, weak blah, 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 blah. That's probably not the case if you're sumoing and if you're a, if you're like a strong sumo puller, your glutes and your hips are not weak. It's your thoracic extension that's probably weak um, because you're not getting that initial tension off the ground. Um, I really like programming snatch grip work for this specific kind of instance because it really forces you to lock your lats down, get external shoulder rotation. Um, you know, like pause deadlifts and things like that are also going to be something that is really beneficial. Um, but I think that I find that I see the most carryover with snatch grip work because people actually really, really learn how to externally rotate their shoulders and open up their chest, get thoracic extension with that. With a pause deadlift, it's generally lighter, so you can still kind of cheat the movement um, a little bit. But I find that the lifters that I work with seem to do the best with snatch grip work for starting tension. This is a great question that came through. Do either of you do form checks looking to find out why I suck? You don't suck. Um, I don't, and I don't believe Riley does either. I will only do them for clients. The reason being is, you know, we, we both have a significant client roster who are sending us an abundance of videos that we watch and we're, we're going through that. It's very difficult when people want to send you a one-off video here and there, do this or that, and they're like, oh, I'll pay you for your time. Like, it's not the same. Um, the answer for that really is get coaching. If you want to get better and you want to know what you want to work at, hire someone who's familiar with how you want to be moving and ask them to coach you and pay for that. Getting form checks and things here and there are kind of the things we do at seminars, but we don't want to have people bombarding us. Like I, I loathe when people I don't know and I don't coach and they don't pay for my time, drop into my DMs and they don't even say hi. They're just like, hey bro, tell me what I could be doing better. Well, the answer you're going to get from me is learn how to people. You can learn how to people better. You can learn how to say fucking hello because you're rude and then ask me something, you know? <laughs> Sorry, old pinky man coming out here at the moment. But it's really, really rude when somebody does that, like dance circus monkey dance. Like, hey, sorry I've taken the time to learn how to do this better than most people. And hey, sorry I get paid for it. But if you don't appreciate that, you can go away. Uh, I have no tolerance for people who have no manners whatsoever. And they just drop in and like, you know, bro, look at my deadlift and tell me what's wrong with it. Your people skills are what's wrong with you. That, and no one's going to help you because you don't know how to people. Yeah, I feel like if you, like, I don't know. Um, I also feel like getting, like, a one-off form check kind of video may not necessarily be helpful if you feel like your form is in dire need of help. If it's in dire need of help, you're not going to fix everything in one go for the most part or for the most part. So, like Trevor mentioned, getting coaching is probably going to benefit you in the long run, especially given, like, how much charging like how much you would pay for a form check versus coaching i feel like the the uh, roi from getting coaching is probably much higher than just doing like a random one form check so you're looking at it on a weekly basis on a weekly basis we can remind you of the cues and see that say you're doing this so much better now we can focus on this aspect and so forth the one off or two off isn't going to give you that um okay next question is i suck at dips any tips for getting better at them <laughs> practice 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 Dips are like pull-ups. It is about spatial awareness of your body and the awareness of how to control your body. So a lot of the calisthenic experts out there will talk about practicing movement daily. It doesn't take a lot of weight to practice dips. It's just your body weight. You should be able to control and move your body weight at will. So Riley always talks about this. One of her big favorite PRs is when women get their first pull-up. Um, it's, it's the same for dips. You know, It's just one of those things that anytime you're in the gym, before you leave, Go over to the dip bars and try and crank out one or two, or even just try and hold yourself or lower yourself slowly, slowly eccentric down. Because really the people who struggle to do dips, they struggle because they lack core strength. They can't hold their body still while the shoulders are moving. So start working it. That's a big identifier. Pull-ups have 300% more uh, activation of your abdominal wall than crunches do. That's a significant indicator that you have to control your body in space through core strength and dips are the same way. There's a lot of times where people are doing dips and their abs cramp while they're holding themselves still because they're, they're, spatial, they're, um, they're contracting their core. So it's a skill practice like any other. You know, work on holding yourself in position, work on lowering yourself as slowly as you can. The up is the easy part. It's controlling the eccentric and stability of your body. It's the hard part. So anytime you're in the gym and you walk by those bars, walk up to them, do a rep or two, grease that groove. The more you practice the pattern, the easier it will be for you to get them. I mean, you... You can do bench dips and like do weighted bench dips, but that's not going to be the same because there's not as much of stabilization there. With bench dips, it's mostly just all triceps. Um, even if they're weighted, it's just you're just tricep. You're just doing tricep push down if you're doing weighted uh, weighted bench dips. So it's not exactly the same. You definitely need the stabilization. But yeah, you. I mean, if you have a dip stand and you have the availability to like 
put a band at the bottom. You can even do banded to where like your knee is, your knees are on the band and it's helping push you up, um, lower yourself slowly, like Trevor's talking about, but you just have to practice it. Like you can't, you can't expect to like, no one's going to say like, how do I get better at squat? Like if you want to get better at something, you, you do the thing that you have to get better at. Like, Oh, I want to get better at squats. So I'm going to squat more. I want to get better at dips. So you have to do more dips. Like you, you have to do the thing that you're not very good at in order to get better at it. That's, it's accurate. <laughs> you just have to do it more. <laughs> All right, what's our next question? Um, tips on bar rolling up on squats. Ah, this is a big one. So if the bar is rolling up onto your neck on squats, it means you do not, very much like the starting position of the deadlift, it means you don't have your lats engaged. Usually it happens when someone's hands get loose, they start pushing the bar up, they go into internal rotation of the shoulders. So it's caused by a couple of things. One, a lack of lat and teres major engagement of depressing the scapula coming down. Two, a weakness in shoulder external rotation. So you tend to go to internal rotation and you start pushing the bar up. So I would improve external rotation strength. But I would also really make sure that your hands are grasping that bar tight, either pulling it apart. If I pull apart, you see my scaps drop down. Or if I pull it down, drop down. For me, because I tend to have, um, I actually pull the bar into me. I will pull the bar forward into me, which drops my elbows down and locks them together. So I, I went over this with um, uh, Pete, one of Bridgeford's athletes at the time, uh, the, the hybrid meet. He was a weightlifter, so he was used to high bar. When he went to low bar, this was his biggest challenge was controlling the bar. And I'm like, stop pulling it down because your external rotation is so strong, you're actually going into extension. So I taught him to pull the bar apart, and that helps tremendously. So either apart, through you, or down. But one of those is going to help you lock the scaps down and keep the bar from rolling up. If you're still struggling, it's a lack of external rotation strength and mobility, and you're internally rotating the bar, and that's what I would focus on. So first, focus on creating tension. And if that's not solving the problem, focusing on getting rid of the restriction that is the, uh, the lack of external rotation you have. I would also venture to say that a lot of the times it can be from lack of, um, I guess, shoulder mobility in the position that you're trying to hold. Like I see a lot of people try to jam their hands as close as possible um, to their, like, to their shoulders. Um, and because of that, they, the mobility doesn't like it basically on the way up. So then it pushes the bar forward and it rolls up on them. So if you're trying to jam your hands as close to your shoulders as possible you probably don't have the mobility for that so generally when i see that um i will ask a lifter to widen their grip like one or two fingers or even like go thumbless or talon whatever it is so that way they can drop their elbows underneath a little bit more um and that tends to help sometimes too because then they're not they're not like trying to force themselves into a position that their body doesn't want to be in so it could also be a shoulder mobility restriction as well all right, that's about our time for today. Thank you guys who've joined us and joined the live and sent questions here. Thank you to all of you who sent our questions on the Q&As we put up every Tuesday and Wednesday. All of you who support Culture Nutra, we appreciate you. People have been sharing that left and right. That's really awesome. If you haven't tried Culture Nutra, make sure you check out the site and the page. Riley just updated the page a little bit. And if you need programming but don't necessarily need coaching, we have the Cultivating Strength programming aspect on there. It's on Train Heroic. There's a link in both Riley's bio and my bio on Instagram. First week is free if you just want to try it and see. It deloads every after every four weeks. So it's four weeks on, one week deload, four weeks on. Hop on there anytime. And there's even a peaking program on there too you can purchase if you need to peak for a meet. So thank you all for joining us. Appreciate it. Riley, I will talk to you later. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>